Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is fulfillment versus micro-fulfillment with my friend Corey Apirian. Corey is the CEO of DaVinci Micro-Fulfillment. Corey and his team at DaVinci support brands with end-to-end solutions for efficient, direct-to-consumer e-commerce fulfillment. Corey's a brilliant entrepreneur and a very talented supply chain pro. Check out our conversation. But... Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Port X Logistics. Port X Logistics is an asset-based transportation company, and they specialize in containerized freight. So if you're having trouble moving your cargo out of the port, very common problem, then reach out to my friends over at Port X Logistics, and their website is portxlogistics.com. They're experienced, and they offer service at every single port and every single rail ramp in the United States and Canada. They have an approach that is guided by their four pillars, which is culture, service, tech, and trucks. Again, check them out over at portxlogistics.com. So how's it going, Corey? Doing well, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So Corey, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. I am the CEO and founder of DaVinci Microfilament, calling in from New Jersey, central New Jersey, in Boundbrook is where our headquarters are. And DaVinci Microfilament is a network of our microfilament centers, which I'll define as miniaturized fulfillment centers in hyper-local areas. And we're helping brands reach reach their consumers with same-day, one-day, two-day cadence of fulfillment using our physical location network and our technology that's built around our order management tech our network optimization to help brands replenish inventories into the appropriate location, as well as our front-end merchandising stack that enables us to understand what products should be selling at what online channels and help brands drive that from end to end. It's a mouthful, but before we hit record, we were talking about the differences between fulfillment and micro-fulfillment. And I think what so many people now need is micro-fulfillment. We'll get into more about what that is in a minute, but where are your locations? We have six locations today, five operating. So we start in central New Jersey. And wait, what is central New Jersey versus just New Jersey? How far are you from like New York City? Probably about an hour. There's North Jersey, Central Jersey, and South Jersey. You have to make a right to make a left-hand turn in all of those areas in New Jersey. But we're, as all New Jerseyans, we like to say what exit off the turnpike we are. It's about exit 10 or 11 off the turnpike. Uh, near Edison, near the, kind of about 15 minutes from the port of Elizabeth near Raritan Center, which is one of the largest uh, distribution areas in New Jersey. Exactly. So you're not too far from the port. Correct. About 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And and how how far from Tony Soprano and the guys in North Jersey? Really close. <laughs> Pretty close. In fact, the Sicko big oil drums that are, that are on the turnpike in that drive are are, are fairly close. And uh, the swampland's not too far either, but not, not saying anyone's in there. I, I have lots of family in New Jersey, and I remember my mom said, this was years ago, my mom was in Jersey. She goes, man, Sunday night hit, and like everything stopped. All of Jersey watches The Sopranos. I was like, mom, everyone watches Sopranos. What are you talking about? The house where he, he, he lives in that show is in Caldwell in Fairfield, right on the border there. Oh, like they even said 15, Caldwell. Yeah, it's like 15 minutes from where I grew up. It's funny. Very nice. Very nice. So- that's where, you're, that's where your headquarters at. So you have a warehouse where you're at in North Jersey? 
I mean, we do. So, yeah, our headquarters is tied to that building. So that's Boundbrook, New Jersey. We have a building in Jacksonville, Florida, another one in Erlanger, Kentucky, right on the border of Cincinnati, Denver, Colorado, Dallas, Texas, and Fresno, California. So we hit about 85% next day, parcel 99.7% today. And uh, depending on the radii around each building, probably about 30 to 50 miles same day and 600 miles for next day through local carrier delivery. So I was just looking on the map at your website and you've got all your locations there. Although I think there's only five, you said, but you have another one opening. Where's the sixth? Yeah, Denver. Denver's the, the one that's opening later this year. Yep. So when you're picking those, did you pick each one of those? You know, Well, how do you pick each one? Let me ask that. Question. Yeah, no, very purposefully, really. There's 14 cities across the U.S. that solve the full next day problem. Uh, when combined for traditional parcel, UPS, FedEx, USPS. So basically, I went around the map and looked at, you know, where the first five or six were to, really, I, I looked where I needed to be to solve the one to two day problem, because that's that's the buying habit that needs to be solved first. The same day problem is is important, but not as important as the one to two day problem. And the whole thesis of micro-fulfillment is really circulated around inventory control and getting closer to the customer. So when 90 plus percent of the deliveries out there are done by parcel for the, the majority of the channels, especially from a agnostic standpoint where you look at drop ship marketplace and D2C channel management, and 90% of those deliveries are UPS, FedEx, post office, then you want to align yourself in the zones where you can reach customers in one to two day from those carrier sets. Very nice. Very nice. So we'll come back to all that in a minute. Tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started Da Vinci. Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey, in North Jersey. By the called Short Hill. Yeah, by the, 15 minutes away, a town called Short Hills, New Jersey, which everybody knows for the, the mall that's there. It's a, a, a nice mall. And about 25 minutes from Manhattan and Newark Airport. I went to undergrad at Syracuse. Nice. Which was, yep, I watched Carmelo Anthony win a national championship there, which was exciting. But more importantly, it was one of four schools in the U.S. that offered supply chain management as a major. And Amazon.com was my case study for four years. Oh, wow. And <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, back then it was Amazon in its infancy. I think they had six fulfillment centers at that point, which started in that Lexington, Kentucky, you know, northern, northern Kentucky area. And, and basically I fell in love with it, you know, point of origin to point of consumption. I still have my textbooks behind me from college that I, that I keep with me. I still keep in touch with my, professors and try to give back to the school and the community there. And, you know, I like to call it my baseball farm system. So try to help some of their interns come in and, you know, find careers and paths and things like that. I had their freshman and sophomore student base well, come and visit. Introduce me. I always like to talk to professors. Yeah. I've had a few. Professors no, I will. Before. Really, really amazing supply chain program and, and really great school. But I cut my teeth in a friend's warehouse my junior year for internship credits, which was a wholesale distributor. And they were a large, small appliance and personal care electric distributor that shipped all of the mom and pops inside of Manhattan. There was no Target and Walmart in Manhattan. And if your coffee maker broke, you went down to the hardware store beneath your building and you bought a new coffee maker. E-commerce wasn't as prevalent then. And it was a multi, multi-million dollar business that was served by distributors across that region. So they had every major brand of housewares from KitchenAid and Black & Decker and Breville and Sonicare, Philips and Relco, et cetera anything you could think of. And I needed internship credits my junior year. And they were asked by Amazon to start 
shipping Brita from Clorox water filters into their FCs for bulk distribution. Wait, so what's an FC? Fulfillment center, distribution center. It was Amazon's fulfillment center. And in this one wholesales large complex, 100 plus thousand, you know, 250,000 square foot building. And basically I learned the ins and outs of the warehouse. I started in the receiving department and worked the whole summer there and started adding some 21st century principles of supply chain to a very, you know, old school wholesale distribution company. And my senior year, about a week before I graduated, the CEO called me and said, you know, Amazon's now asked us to start this thing called Dropship. We really don't know what this means. You want to come give this a shot. You know, you, you seem to do well before. So I brought one of my professors down with me a week after I graduated and he helped me kind of figure out, you know, what to do from a pick pack fulfillment area perspective. And I Googled how to wire a Cat5 cable and started building out a little pick pack area myself. And shortly thereafter, I became one of Amazon's first fulfillment partners and within two months built a multi-million dollar business and helped launch over 25 different subcategories on Amazon and then took that model and copied it to Macy's and Lowe's and Walgreens and all these other online retailers where I became one of or the first fulfillment partner that those companies had. So not only did I learn the ins and outs since 2004 of the fulfillment business, but I also was overseeing all the integrations and building all the the front end stuff. So managing the brands, building the content, working through all the portals. And I really, you know, got my MBA in, in experience of the e-commerce ecosystem since then in every major channel and category that you could think of. So Corey, for those who don't live it day to day, what do you mean when you say dropship? Dropship is when you are holding inventory and you are shipping it to the end customer on behalf of a retail partner before the marketplaces and D2C was created. That's kind of what you did. And brands who have kind of always been terrified of single piece fulfillments and niches or single piece returns, historically very much outsourced that to wholesale distributors so they could buy the inventory and they could worry about breaking it down into fulfillments of each and things like that. So ultimately, it was a wholesale relationship, even though it was still shipping to the end customer, that distributor would buy it in a two-step model, which means they'd buy it from the brand at one price and then two-step it, you know, mark it up to the retailer. And then the retailer would mark it up to the end customer. The retailer would use their partial account and deal with all the tax nexus on the front end. And I t- think typically, I remember this kind of, this is a little bit of a pre-internet thing. Typically, you wouldn't want if you were drop shipping something for someone, it shouldn't have your name and address on it because that retailer didn't want them going around them. So if it was, you know, XYZ Wholesale, XYZ Wholesale didn't want them calling Corey and Joe right? <laughs> because they say I can save 10% or 20% by going right to the... No, that's exactly right. But the reality is, is that the only retailer who built up enough volume in the early days on certain items and brands was Amazon. Right. And they built their back-end model to be able to mimic a Walmart store or Target store, specifically Walmart, so that the brands could feed inventory on a direct basis into their fulfillment centers as Amazon. But they're really shipping pallets and master cartons into the FC, just like they would to fill up a modular. But having agility in your model is probably one of the most important things you could have done then, but way more important now. So when you're shipping to Amazon, you need to be able to ship to consumer and to their FC on their behalf through Vendor Central or Seller Central, whichever you're operating in. And that's a really big 
you know, philosophy that Da Vinci really helps its brands kind of realize today. So continue on with your career highlights before you started Da Vinci and then tell us when and why you started Da Vinci. Yeah, absolutely. So fast forward, the company that I was working for, I started this division from scratch. We built it up. The company got acquired by a larger consumer electronics distributor that was doing the same thing with all the high-end consumer electronics brands and, and mass brands as well. And basically, I watched them go from one location that we were operating out to now three locations. They had Reno, Atlanta, and New Jersey. And they installed three systems at once that Manhattan, Oracle, and distributed order management, the AT&T Sterling. And I, I saw that kind of get mishandled from an integration perspective. And they were having a hard time marrying invoices to drop shipments and things like that and duplicating inventories around the country. So I left in 2010 to start my own company, Atlas, where I help brands write their e-commerce strategies and teach them how to operate online. And I grew some major brands into over nine figures in size in, in that one-year period, really, between 2010, 2011. And ultimately ended up getting introduced to a family office where they backed me to start my own distributorship. And the company that I had been with prior, based on all the issues they were having, had filed for bankruptcy in mid-2011. So I reacquired my housewares org out of it and built it back through DaVinci, uh, through Atlas, excuse me, and basically started rebuilding all my integrations. But at this point in time, brands were very much watching the internet grow. The buying habit has now evolved to three to five days, two days in some areas. But you know, most of the online retailers are pushing brands to drop ship heavily outside of Amazon who wanted everything direct into their fulfillment center network. And Seller Central started becoming more prevalent. So brands were starting to understand how to ship things into FBA and Vendor Central as well. So it kind of became this mess of the Amazon eBay, Walmart marketplace, where you had all these different supplier sets, basically competing for the buy box and really hurting the brand's integrity, because they were beating up pricing. And, you know, inventory was just all over the place. And it was not decentralized. It was, you know, in five different distributors, it was a race to the bottom on dollars, and everyone was competing against each other. So I ended up starting a second company called Edge, where I started building IP and going to China and manufacturing my own items. And I, I started licensing as well. And some of the licenses that I acquired, basically, I grew really, really quickly with really smart merchandising online, and backing that up with smart domestic interlogistics. So I had Edge and Atlas working together, and really started rounding out my knowledge base of not only all of the e-commerce ecosystem, but the global supply chain and product management and understanding the manufacturing P&L, the retailer P&L, the interoperation of brick and mortar and e-commerce, and tying that really all together. But I was I was draining product and importing to my infrastructure, which was a million square foot shared service environment in Long Island. So, you know, talk about the antithesis of micro fulfillment. And I basically grew a microwave oven business, which took off and I grew about 50 million in one year, became the number one supplier online in almost every online retailer, and then took over the shelf for almost every major brick and mortar that you can think of. And I had 300,000 microwaves in a shared service distribution center in Long Island. So the, the trade was killing me. The freight out was killing me. You know, you couldn't get a piece of inventory to somebody in Chicago, nonetheless, California in less than three to five days, you know, seven, 10 days to the West Coast from Long, Long Island. So I had to go into a 3PL environment to 
offset capacity from the shared service environment that I was in. And microwave oven category is a very razor thin margin business. So that really didn't work. So I ended up selling the company to a competitor who I was taking a lot of business off the shelf and online from and kind of let them deal with it. And then in 2019, I started DaVinci. And the reason that I started DaVinci was because I understood that brands were the one who were asked to do the heavy lifting and that in order to deliver at this point, which was the need for next day and two day deliveries, you really needed to be in the same zone as the end customer, but it was really expensive to do it as a distributor that had no margin. And it was really painful for a brand to do it in a traditional 3PL environment. And most traditional 3PLs at that time specifically only had a few, if not one fulfillment center or warehouse. And there was nothing that really had a operation that was closer to the customer with the technology to go integrate into an agnostic set of channels that also understood the inner workings of e-commerce and how to drive sales online and differentiate assortments to create turns out of inventory. And when I look backwards at my career and I could see all these issues of channel management and these issues of inventory control and these issues of integrations and these issues of getting inventory precisely into customers' hands, same day, one day, two day, for dropship marketplace and D2C channels, it was very clear that nothing existed out there and that the pricing models also of those distributors and traditional 3PLs were also very punitive to agnostic brands and only worked for certain categories. And I basically created this concept of DaVinci Micro Fulfillment, which was an interoperation really of front-end merchandising network optimization and a physical location network backed by technology that could enable all of the things that I just talked about. And when you think about the golden principle, the mathematical principle that Leonardo da Vinci created, it's a mathematical principle that says everything is connected. And I was reading Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci book as I was trying to figure out my next move. I was reading a lot about this new concept of micro-fulfillment. And my one-year-old's name at that time, who's five now, is, is Leo. So da Vinci, da Vinci was just a very logical name for the business. Very nice. Very nice. And, you know, one of the challenges we all have is when we pick, when we have to determine who our customers are, is trying to understand our customers' problems. You've already kind of lived your customers' problems. I mean, you were your customer in some ways, right? Correct. Correct. I, I watched the whole pain point and opportunity and, Da Vinci really is birthed by the idea of let's help brands not repeat the same mistakes and, you know, double down on the successes over the past 20 years of what e-commerce has become and evolved to and the core components of it. Content, merchandising, integrations, strong pick and pack operations. And micro fulfillment, again, is, is really focused. It's about precision and smaller footprint buildings are a lot easier to operate. I mean, they have its own challenges too, but they're, they're more efficient to operate from a pick face, put away and packing perspective to create turns of inventory in a forward deployed manner and not storing goods and charging back real estate, labor and freight. So that's, that's a major difference between right. a traditional 3PL that is built around pallets and master carton storage and then movement of that pallet and master carton bulk product versus 
forward deployment of eaches. I love it. I love it. You, you jumped ahead at me, but I like that. We when we talk about like traditional fulfillment, and I'll just I'll go even kind of pre-internet. If someone is to ask you 10, 15 years ago, I need to do distribution, you would say, Well, how many warehouses do you want? And you say, Well, one, right? It's to support the US. You'd make it somewhere in Indiana, somewhere within, you know, an hour or two of Indianapolis or that area, right? And that's was because it was a certain distance, it could cover the Midwest and most of the Northeast and the South, right? But obviously not same day next day to Texas or California, but we didn't have same day next day. We didn't care. We were probably shipping stuff by the pallet to a store. And it was the store's problem to get it there same day next day. Flash forward to today, consumers want same day next day. And I will just ask you this. Is it mostly next day? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends on the category. You know, if it's a pair of shoes, I think customers would wait two to three days. I, you know, I, a lot of people talk about, well, people will wait five days, you know, and it's like, well, they're not if they're given the option and the cost is somewhat similar. And the way that you get your fulfillment cost down is through getting, you know, closer to the customer, of course, and having that precision. But Precision is really the most important thing that customers want. If you say you're going to deliver it in two days, deliver it in two days. If you're going to say you're delivered it in 30 minutes, deliver it in 30 minutes. So that's really, really important. But I think if customers can pick between same day, next day, two day, I do think you'll see a lot of next day deliveries. And I think, you know, the best stat to show on that is I think over 90% of Amazon Prime members opt in for next day based on all the research that's out there, not two day, not same day. Yep. So when I always say same day, next day, but really is mostly next day. And I can't remember ever saying I needed something same day. I bought groceries and had them delivered same day, but that's a different world. <laughs> it's a different world. And that's where the category management comes into it, right? So if you have something frozen or you have something chilled or it's, you know, you're cooking or whatever it is, or you need groceries and yeah, you're going to off, you're going to do that same day. I think the optionality is really important, even when you throw in like your buy online, pick up in store optionality or buy online, pick up anywhere, whatever phrases is being used for that particular retail channel. That reminds me, before we hit record, we we're talking about how we met years ago. I had talked to you. There was these two, they're supermodels. I thought this, you know, when somebody says I'm a supermodel, you go, oh, okay, yeah, this I get it. <laughs> I'm a rube, right? But they really were supermodels and they had this really good... I think it was a vegan ice cream. And we we're talking about, they they were doing it locally down in their, their neck of the woods and they wanted to do say, fulfillment. And that is really, really difficult to do direct to consumer with something that's frozen. And you just mentioned frozen. That's why I bring that up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember that well. I mean, we didn't have the infrastructure then to help them, but you know, now, now we do. And now we have the point to point delivery mechanisms with our partners to go help. But there's a lot of really great technology out there to help on frozen foods and have point to point deliveries. But you really have to have that infrastructure. It's a, it's it's an expensive thing, and you can't sell ones. You can't sell one pint of it. You'd have to sell. No, you got to buy a six pack or something like that. And uh, the, the sometimes the I'm guessing that the cost of shipping, even small parcel, would be as high as the cost of the product. Yeah, but you wouldn't use small small parcel. Use something there. else. You would have to use. A would have to use a local carrier like a shipped or a DoorDash okay. or someone like that who can go point to point and be able to go deliver that, you know, in in 30 minutes or two hours. And it would need to be held frozen somewhat 
you know, until that, that point in time of the delivery, you know, you certainly couldn't leave it on your doorstep. So, so there's a lot of orchestration and technology and, and that, that goes into delivering. So, something like so what you're saying to the supermodels is go ahead and call Corey's team. They'll get you hooked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, Corey, so let's talk about the difference between fulfillment and micro fulfillment. So I mentioned the old model, the old model was not same day next day. So I didn't have to be close to my customer. So the tra- is traditional, is it fair to say traditional warehouses were not close to population centers? It didn't have to be close to population centers? I think it depends. I mean, there are certainly some of them that, that were yep. and are. A lot of the traditional 3PLs, whether through acquisitions or whatever it may be, how they've built some of their needs over, over the years. I definitely think there's like a cluster effect, right? Like they'll have two or three buildings in, in you know, North Florida or something like that, right? You know, Da Vinci... And it doesn't mean that I'm better or worse than them. Like we've just gone out in a very strategic way to solve a a problem that we knew and were very focused on solving kind of after we had the answers to the test. So I think yep. that's a leg up, you know, in, in how we've gone to go build it. But, you know, the consumer buying habit has evolved. There's no no question about it, right? And it as you saw with Amazon recently, I mean, they just returned 35 million square feet of large fulfillment centers between, you know, 150 to 500,000 square feet in space. How many locations? 35 million square feet of space. How many locations was that? I don't know the exact number. It was 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 dozens. It was dozens of them. And they gave those back because this... They subleased them because it was too expensive for them to carry in their model. And now there's a lot of news about what they've done in what they call their new regional fulfillment model. And a lot of brands have felt pain in this because they've cut out weeks of cover and procurement. But what Amazon's doing is essentially DaVinci's model where they're getting inventory closer to the customer and enabling more point-to-point deliveries with what they call their same-day fulfillment network. And there are 75,000 square foot micro fulfillment centers that are fed from their sortation and mothership centers. And the reality of that model is that it's not that it's a same-day business model. Same-day becomes the effect and the output of that model the lower operating expense is the reason that they're doing that. And it's more efficient and a lower cost of fulfillment. And the thesis for Amazon is also inventory control and merchandising and, and fulfillment operations. And they're trying to dramatically lower their total cost of fulfillment. I think Amazon, before they did this, their total cost of fulfillment was well over 30% inclusive of freight. That's really, really expensive. I, don't, I can't tell you what it is now. And these are somewhat public numbers. You know, the average customer for DaVinci with freight is under 15% as a percent of their revenue. Without freight, it could be anywhere from 5 to 10% at max. So your locations, are they closer to consumers than the traditional? Let's just say we're comparing you to a traditional fulfillment center. Are you closer to consumers, closer to population centers? I'm not going to... I mean, there's dozens and dozens of logistics I know, it'd have to be a generality, of course. Yeah, I, I would say that the physical location network, what I like to call our neural network, you know, it's a living, breathing thing. And like this network is somewhat always talking to each other. There's automatic management technology that's routing orders and integrated with all these end channels and marketplaces. Mm-hmm. There's network op- optimization technology that's looking at how to replenish inventories. There's carrier optimization technology that's routing through our mediator at zip code level for certain business rules of different categories and retail channels and delivery times that it needs to service. So for, for us, when orders come in, you know, it takes its own form and, and, you know, we don't know where it's going to necessarily end up. It's where the inventory is and where the end customer is. And 
It's based on a agnostic set of business rules that are best for that brand and end customer and the channel that it's serving to meet that service level. So, you know, really it's the combination of the network and the combination of the technology that makes everything so unique. And, and it's really not necessarily having one building in Jacksonville. I mean, there's plenty of logistics companies that have buildings in Jacksonville right near my building, but those companies might not have another building in Kentucky, Jersey, and Dallas. And that way that whole area is, is fed in a, in a very cohesive manner. Right. So what makes, what's the difference between a micro fulfillment center and a fulfillment center? The size is certainly one of them. I think the technology deployed within it, the categories and channels served within it, right? And I think the precision of the fulfillment capability, right? So, and, and what I mean by that is that, is it just managing fulfillment operations? Is it moving pallets? Is it moving store fulfillments? You know, I look at microfilment as serving a forward deployed inventory strategy. So what that means is you're not storing inventory and you're not dedicating, dedicating like an aisle of your racking to brand X, right? And, and 10 bin locations to brand Y. And they're paying for that racking and storage, whether they're using it or not on some level. We're not taking the cost of our MFC and, and understanding the cost per cube and then charging back the brands that we're, we're basing it off turns of inventory. So it's a different model and how we look at it. And, it, and it's a different problem on some level that we're solving. Yep. And I'm assuming when you say um, micro fulfillment center, more likely to be uh, all direct to consumer or do you do anything to stores? Some stores, but I think direct to stores is a great use case for micro fulfillment. What I would say, it goes back onto that storage mentality. Like it's got to be just faster turns, direct, precise replenishments. And I think that's where micro fulfillment is really important, whether it's going to an end customer or an independent retailer, or a direct-to-store model. I think microfilment is really powerful. When you're filling up a modular in a distribution center, you're likely not going to use microfilment to feed that. There's no reason to. It's kind of too many touches at that point. Yeah, and I think when we when I think about the traditional fulfillment model, I think of them holding goods, sometimes for a long time, sometimes till the stuff goes obsolete. And we saw fulfillment by Amazon get tighter and tighter and tighter about who they worked with. And the people who they didn't want to work with was anyone who said, you're going to have to hold my stuff. I have all these SKUs and it's not fast moving that they can't, you can't do fulfillment by Amazon if you're not fast moving inventory. No, that's exactly right. And Amazon has this new cubic inch policy that, you know, it's really punitive if stuff's there for too long or you're over your capacity limit. So you know, we have a lot of clients that come to us back what I was saying earlier on agility, right, to be able to ship into FBA with faster turns and replenishments, but also to back up that inventory with their merchant filled, which is through their seller central world. So FBA and merchant filled kind of work together where, you know, you don't get the prime badge with merchant filled, but you're always fulfilling based on real time orders that are coming through their platform. Yeah, well, this is this seems like a very common theme on my podcast as of late. I think 20 years ago, if you said, what's a warehouse? I was like, a warehouse is just a warehouse. Like, there it is. They can serve anybody <laughs> doing anything. You can store furniture there. Probably the auto parts are in there, groceries. I, and I know there was a specialization back then. But now I think we're getting to a place where we're getting very specialized, right? And there's some companies that say, I don't do, I don't do the direct-to-consumer real well, which is parcel. And it's fast moving where you're doing thousands, if not tens of thousands of shipments out the door every day. 
nope, they're used to moving a thousand pallets to a hundred stores in a day. It's a different world. It's a different world. It's a different technology. It's different carrier sets. It's different training, right? It, you know, different equipment on the floor, uh, different layout of the buildings, all, everything is different, you know? So, and it's really distribution centers are complex and, you know, complexity equals cost. So what we try to do is just stay in our lane of focus. So you say DC, what's the difference between a distribution center and a micro fulfillment and a traditional warehousing? Yeah, I would say there's there's several layers there, right? There's micro fulfillment centers, there's fulfillment centers, which would be like a CFC, a centralized fulfillment center is how I would look at that. Then a distribution center. I would think of as a distribution center as Amazon's 4 million square foot mothership. Right. It's it's like the feeder, right? Everything's coming into there and it's being inventory is being stored and sorted there. That's the hub, theoretically. And then your spokes are your central fulfillment center or your micro fulfillment centers and your your CFCs are going to be your larger fulfillment centers in your regional areas that are really solving your your large parcel throughput and some sortation activities. And I think your micro fulfillment centers are really rifle approach precise that can be solving your parcel, but also solving you know direct to you know home point to point fulfillments or point to store fulfillments, and it's really specialized. And it's at that point creating more inventory turns when you have density to fill those micro fulfillment centers and you can create the right routes and logic and, and, you know, business rules really on, on what you're filling, where you're filling it, how you're holding that inventory, what you're servicing. And it's, it's changing seasonally. It's changing regionally, like all of those things. Right. And that's what our technology really enables. Right. One common theme on my podcast as of late has been the, the bad fit that some e-commerce companies have with their 3PL and vice versa. And I think it's natural. We saw, especially during COVID, this rapid rise in e-commerce. And by the way, a lot of those e-commerce companies aren't doing as well as we'd like them to do. There have been some growing pains, but growing right alongside them were all the 3PLs, um, fulfillment centers, micro-fulfillment centers that were growing. And I think a lot of people just said, yes, 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 yes to everything. And then as they matured, they said, you know what? You aren't a good fit. So talk about first the the fit problem and then talk about the sweet spot for you guys over at DaVinci. Yeah, no question. I think that's so important. I mean, you need to know what you're good at and, you know, not bite off more than you can chew. I've definitely seen that movie uh, over my career. <laughs> you know, when I was younger, but it's really important for a 3PL or a logistics partner in any walk of supply chain and logistics to know what they're good at and to interview the customer as much as they're being interviewed. I think that's, that's a really critical thing. I've heard a lot of people talk about that. It's like, match, it's like a matchmaker versus a sales. Totally. It's not so much a sales pitch. It's like, who do you belong with? And, and if you're, if you're built for everything, then you're built for no. <laughs> exactly. Right? you know, jack of all trades, master of none, whatever, you know, adage you want to use in there. So, you know, for, for DaVinci, you know, if you're coming to DaVinci, then you're trying to solve a, likely a multi-channel fulfillment problem, or, or maybe not, you know, maybe it's just your Shopify store, you want lower freight costs, but you're already kind of subscribed to the idea that you want to create inventory turns and decentralize your inventory and, and, you know, kind of, have the ability to be inside kind of like, let's just call it a growth engine that you could focus on everything that you need to focus on 
in the the categories that are core to da vinci like we're not going to take on furniture and washers and dryers like we don't have clamp forklifts in our buildings and i don't want them you know that's not what we're looking to do you know cpg and you know consumer electronics housewares textiles even some apparel like those things could be really good fits for microfilament but you have to plan it the right way you know you're not putting every item in every building all year round. You're not storing inventory. You need to feed it from an apparel perspective and have your A and B movers classified in, in the majority of your buildings where your density is and your C and D, you know, movers and less and so on and so forth, you know, if you're in certain categories. So when you say A, B, C, D, you're, you're referring Item to Item classifications. This... Okay. So you classify like the SKUs? Yeah. Yeah. In, in the velocity that the, and, and how they move by building and, and across the network. So your 80-20 rule, really. By the way, I say this all the time to people. We all love Costco. We like Trader Joe's. We like I, – I, I don't go often, but Aldi's is by my house. There's like two a few miles from my house. I like it every time I go there. They all have much fewer SKUs than their competition. They're telling you what to buy. Yeah. And they're focused. And And I've heard somebody during the pandemic say – I think it was Andrew Lynch from Zipline – I think he said that during the pandemic, some of the grocery stores are noticing not everyone can keep up with the on time and in full, but they also noticed that usually we have 27 types of peanut butter. And when we got down to just seven types of peanut butter, we sold more peanut butter. And that is an interesting thing because by the way, I like to shop at, I don't go there all the time, but Target's grocery store. Target's great. Yeah. And I always call it curated. They tell no, you is. what to oh, buy. No. They t- there's Tar- fewer Target skills. Is- Target has done a phenomenal job of that. And even their private label business, they've done a phenomenal job at because they understand that. And I will absolutely, you know, agree with that comment. And there was a lot of skew rationalization. You know, you don't see 19 flavors of Oreo, you know, on the shelf anymore. You know, you see what, well, whatever it, seems it is. It's really right? appropriate for your discussion, though. Right? No, it is. And that's why merchandising is a part of our technology stack. Because what is merchandising? How we look at assortment planning by channel and deploying the right content and tools and real-time data to build market baskets and to create more turns out of the inventory sets in our micro-fulfillment centers. And we have some very unique technology we've built around kitting and bundling. So back to your ice cream example, if you can purposefully offer one item to Amazon and then a different combination of those similar items if you're a CPG company to Target and Walmart and then a different set to Costco because it's a club, you're appealing to that demographic, but you're inbound of the truckload and pallet quantities of those componentry and eaches are going to turn faster and in a more purposeful way where you're not diluting your brand and you're not having Amazon, Walmart, and Costco fight against the same buy box, which is yes, the shopping cart, yes. and drive the price down. So these are learnings from my career that I've learned in a painful way, but you can they can be used as an advantage, and that's where... Da Vinci's selling style for brands becomes really important and and really a game changer in which other logistics companies and their teams, again, not better or worse. It's just, I come from a different space where I've been merchandising and building product and also the pick and pack operations. So I've, I've combined it into something that can be really useful to brands, which at the end of the day, the day I think fulfillment's all about creating turns and getting closer to the customer. And you need to know what products are selling where to enable that. And you can't just bundle 15 items together just because. Yep. So I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean Solutions is 
a nearshore offshore service provider, and they provide a range of services, including operation, technology, marketing, sales, and business process outsourcing. They work with over 500 U.S. transportation and logistics companies. And what they have is this model where they have satellite offices down in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. And their their approach is real low cost, low risk, low hassle. They have 9,000 employees now. They're one of the fastest growing companies in America. And again, everybody I know seems to be working with them. But if you're not working with them, check them out. Lean Group, L-E-A-N group.com. And by the way, my podcast is edited by someone from Lean, Lean Solutions Group. They're a fantastic company. I just did an interview with Ryan Mann. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Check them out. So I've said this before on my podcast, but it's so true. If you and I right now started at CPG, hope you, hopefully you know more about it than I would. <laughs> we start that CPG and then we say, well, we're going to sell it direct to consumer. Well, now I've got a problem because we don't have enough traffic to our website. So we got to somehow drive traffic to our website, right? We might also say, let's try and sell it on Amazon. There's no guarantee that they're going to accept us, you know, because we'd have to have a certain volume, right? We would have to also compete because when you go to Amazon and say, hey, I want to buy one of those nice sweaters from Corey and Joe. Amazon says, are you sure you want to buy Corey and Joe sweaters? Because there's a lot better sweaters. And they line them all up. <laughs> like, hey, you want to buy the Amazon Amazon sweater? It's 30% less. Built the same place. Yeah, but the Amazon sweater, that algorithm is built off of A, marketing dollars, B, profitability, C, right. delivery, cadence, prime eligibility. So if you are going to be successful on Amazon, you can build anything on Amazon. You just can't put unlimited items into Amazon's network. So you could start fulfilling, you could start build, you know, Joe and Corey sweater.com tomorrow. You know, it, it, like if you understand who you're selling to and the demographic behind that, price the product the right way, list the product with the right content, have the right inventory available in the right location so you can deliver it with a strong customer experience and precisely, you're going to be successful mostly. You know, there's no bad product, just bad pricing. Someone taught me that a long time ago. Well, it just, it's, I guess how com complex it's become is I want to sell on Amazon because it's easy, but they're also, it's a marketplace. When I go on Amazon, I expect them to give me options. Sometimes it's almost annoying when I say I want a pair of new Hoka shoes and they're like, hey, we sell 800 types of shoes. You're like, enough already. Give me my Hoka's, yeah. right? That's their job. Driving traffic to our website, that's a job. Just going to stores and getting shelf space, that's that's a project all by itself. So, the, so these retailers have some real challenges that they have to, those are all very real and they would have to deal with those. So it seems to me like the, the, the next level of how do I actually fulfill this is something like, it's just too much. So I can see why they come to a company like yours and say, geez, OP, Corey, help us. <laughs> we we yeah. got enough problems. Integrating with those channels, but- to the point that you're making, it is a lot, but they need to be, most brands need to be operating in a multi-channel fulfillment environment to be sustainable. You know, Peloton went to Amazon eventually. Cuisinart ended up going into Walmart and Target eventually, even though they were a, a high-end brand in the small appliance space. Like you can't just sell, your, your acquisition costs and your, you know, diminishing returns hit a point and you, you, you have to have product for the right channel, but you need to be exposed where the People are shopping. You said Peloton decided because they had kind of a um, a blow up there. They were selling tons of their bikes. My kid bought one. She loves it. 
and she rides it every day, but they couldn't seem to deliver them. They're made in China, I think. Yeah, so I think it was some... just it was all about inventory control and their supply chain management and getting freight closer to the customer. I mean, that's a lesson one oh one. And then, you know, they had one item and they were selling on one channel and everybody bought them during the pandemic and they had nobody else to sell to. So So walk me through this. If a company calls you Give me an example. Don't you don't use names unless you want to. A company that you work with and how it, how it starts and how you help them day to day. Yeah, a lot of brands find out about us through their agency partners or word of mouth or just relationships with people in our organization or myself. And um, our model is very unique, so I think people have done a lot of research on us. I think organically, people looking for microfilming can go Google microfilming, and we'll be near the top. We don't pay for our own search terms. So there's a few people that buy our keywords, but you know, we're, 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 we're up front there. And basically we ingest data from them. We sell with data. You know, we're just telling them what we can do, understand the problems they could solve. And then we, we ingest their historical data and we can show at a zip code level where their inventory needs to be placed to reach customers in same day, one day, two day, and what their total cost of fulfillment would look like if they were operating through DaVinci. And mostly we will end up coming dramatically lower based on our model, our proximity to the end customer, and the unique way we can utilize parcel and local carriers in addition to the dropship channels, which have an incremental sale effect that we can show them by putting their products in our buildings and using those to create more turns. And, and when, you, when you combine all that together, it's very easy, easily mimicked if we have historical data sets that we can compare against. And you can clearly see the savings and the incremental opportunities. So who's like a sweet spot for you? What kind of businesses? I would say any, this is a, a large range, but most companies doing between 10 and $100 million in e-commerce revenue through fulfillment are a really good fit for DaVinci. And and obviously that you said nothing super big either. You're not doing uh, furniture. <laughs> no furniture, washers and dryers. We can do some smaller furniture, like RTA stuff, things like that, you know, that are that are like one box, but Typically, we're not doing like large couches that we're storing in our building or things like that, or mattresses. Yeah. Talk to the guys over at Red Stag. They do some of that. Yeah. And they have their niche, right? And that's what they focus on. So, yeah, you know. That's, yeah. And they, they also don't take a lot of small stuff because they recognize that's where they stay. So let's just say when they start that relationship with you, and I'm assuming a lot of the stuff you're, used, you're getting to your locations comes, comes from Port of LA or Port of New York. Yeah, I mean, typically we, we don't do a lot of drayage into our buildings because, you know, you're holding too much inventory. Unless the turns, you know, are okay. justified, then it's not going to come right into our MFCs. We have locations near ports. We've certainly done a lot of that. But if you need, if you have a lot of volume coming from overseas, typically you're going to bring it into a large distribution center and then break it down and then inject into a DaVinci microfilament center for your fulfillment operations. And we're going to quarterback where all that goes based on our technology and data sets or looking at that initial fill from what I just suggested. We, we know where things are going to come out the gate. So are those shipped via uh, LTL or truckload or how's that shipped to your location? Yeah, it, it depends. Usually the initial fill is a full truckload into a couple buildings. And then we start our systems start learning from there unless there's cases where it's a you know, there's four quadrants. There's low value, low weight, low value, high weight, high value, low weight, and high value, high weight. So depending on that quadrant, you know, you can make an argument that microfilament's necessary for each one of those quadrants, depending on the category. But if you're a low value, high weight item, like a pack of soda, 
it's really hard to ship that from one location to the entire U.S. Because, you know, when you're shipping that through traditional parcel, it's going on so many sortation belts. You know, by the time it ends up to the end customer, if it does end up there at all, it's going to be pretty close to being damaged and it's going to have a low rate of probability of surviving that. And the cost is going to be astronomical if it does. So some of this, I'm assuming, is fashion oriented. So it changes. So and also fashion changes. So can I find myself like I sold this many sweaters out and that were supported out of, say, your Florida location, but it grew and, and, it, and it grew significantly. How do I, how are you guys? Are you just getting daily data on their sales and then being able to say the next, are you, are you forecasting to them? Yeah, we're, we're doing all the forecasting and the replenishment is driven 100% from DaVinci. And that's a really unique thing that we drive and it's from the real time. So you're POS. almost like a store. Yeah, on some level, we're mimicking that for them and taking the heavy lifting off them and sharing that data back with them based on their lead times and MOQs into us also. So we're not just bringing in like one t-shirt, you know, we're bringing in a MasterCard and that will have 90 days worth of supply. So how many SKUs, I mean, what would be, I know it would change a lot by uh, depending on the product, but is SKU count a big deal? I mean, do you have a lot of companies that have that long tail with very little or is that discouraged in a micro-fulfillment? Oh, it's discouraged all the time, but I mean, it yeah. go on. No, I mean, we're all about creating turns. So we don't want to be storing goods. And we have, you know, language in our agreements. And we're very upfront with our partners that, you know, we don't want to be holding inventory. And, you know, we're typically around eight weeks for creating turns for brands on given items. There are some brands that have 500 items with us. There's some brands that have 10 items. There's one brand that has one, you know. Uh, and, and it's really all about precision and the use case, right? So we try not to be punitive. We understand the merchandising cadence of things. So you need to, you know, have 10 colors of stand mixer from KitchenAid on the shelf to sell the one, you know, red color. You know, you need to have the blue and the yellow and the black and the white, you know, in order to sell like, you know, the, the core items. But at the end of the day, you know, how we place that inventory, where we place it and when we place it. That's what our technology is driving, and that's what makes it unique, and that's what makes it affordable for the brands to do business with us and affordable for us to, to you know, keep the lights on. Yeah, it's interesting because when I think of traditional warehousing, it's the tail, not the dog. You're not you – know, the traditional warehouse doesn't say, send us more of this. In this environment, you're the one saying, hey, we're ran out of these SKUs or we're running low on these SKUs replenish. Yeah. And, and then are they giving you, are they giving the stuff to you and then you're responsible for moving it to whatever location we can. Or are they moving? Typically it's better if they just inject into our buildings and it's just less handling and touches. So, you, so you'll say, I need a uh, hundred at that location, 200 at that one. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Correct. And, and so you say these aren't getting right. You're not getting containers. This is stuff that typically goes to their DC and then gets from their DC to your, uh, MFC, Microfluent Center. Correct. We, I mean, we can get containers. We have gotten containers, but typically it's going to their distribution center first or going into a strategic partner of ours that will break multiple containers down and then inject multiple brands to us at once. Yep. So I think if we've touched on it, but just to wrap this bad boy up, what would be the advantage for the companies to using a microfulfillment model? There, there's two really main advantages. I mean, from micro fulfillment specifically, it's lower your lower your cost of fulfillment and your your freight, and get closer to the customer and increase your sales. Right, that's the net output. 
But for Da Vinci, you know, I would just add, you know, check off your your necessarily your boxes that you need for the the agnostic set of channels you're servicing, whether it's dropship, marketplace, or D2C, you know, which is a unique thing. There's not a lot of logistics companies that do all of those channels. So it's an important thing for brands who really look to DaVinci for certain channels, whether it's an Amazon or a Target or a Walmart, in addition to their Shopify or Kroger.com businesses that we really help them support because of what we can do. Yeah. Well, I love what you guys are doing because it feels like, um, feels like this whole industry is growing up really quick because we did have this rapid growth in the last decade. And I think now we're, we're probably still really busy, but time to take a breather and say what makes sense. And by the way, before we hit record, we were talking about a lot of warehousing companies became venture capital backed in recent years. And I've heard complaints lately from other, other warehousing companies saying, yeah, when you Google anything in warehousing, you get everyone who has VC money and there's, they're this first 20 sponsored ads and regardless of the location. And I've always thought, I know there's a lot of tech in what you do, but it's also a lot of physical locations and people in what you're doing. So it's not a, it's not a pure play in my mind. I mean, the VCs know more about their business than I ever would. Yeah. I mean, we, we have less people than a traditional distribution center because we offset capacity with our multiple locations and our order management technology, which is a really good thing. But, you know, the physical location network terrifies certain investors. There's no question, <laughs> you know, and, and supply chain technology. So certain venture capitalists really love just like the tech side of it. And, and that's something that's important to them. But you need, in my opinion, the supply chain, you have to move physical things and you need the technology and the physical component. So I don't think that's going away. Yeah, you need, I, again, I, I don't think I would have said this so long ago, but it's the data that you have that you give back and you're saying, this is, this is what we see. Please provide us with blank. It's like you're a store. I mean, it's your, you have almost that relationship with your customer. We do. We're just not buying anything. We're letting them control it right and create more turns and density with their inventory sets to sell to all retail channels online because they're the ones that have the control and they're the ones that need to be direct with the end consumer or the channel that they're selling to that's really really important we enable that so one one last time who's your sweet spot brands who fulfill anywhere between 10 to 100 million dollars in gross merchandise value online who operate in multi-channel fulfillment arenas for d2c amazon target walmart whether it's marketplace, dropship, or direct-to-consumer. Really, CPG, electronics, housewares, core categories of general merchandise, like those are really sweet spots for DaVinci. Excellent, excellent. So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Corey. People who are killing it in the space, who else should I interview? Well, I'm glad I made the cut. So thank you so much for having me. I've listened to your podcast for years. I really appreciate it. Well, thank it. you. Thank you. I would say uh, Dan Borgol from Front Door Collective, he knows I would his love stuff. to introduce. I, I have sent emails to him, so our, our LinkedIn messages. So yeah, maybe you got his email. Send it to me. He knows his stuff. I will. Excellent. And where's he at? Front Door Collective? Front Door Collective. He's the CEO and founder of Front Door Collective, a last mile carrier. Have built a really unique franchise model of last mile carriers and networks that's really starting to change the game there. Smart guy. Excellent. Well, thank you. So Corey, what conferences will we see you guys at? Manifest is a great, ah, great show. I was there. That was fantastic. I had my first one this year. It was a great show. Me too. A lot of fun. I'll be at grocery shop again. I've been there most years. That's a really- Where's that at? That's in Vegas. That's run by the same team that built Shop Talk. It's oh, a really nice. unique show. 
a lot of really cool CPG automation technology companies there. That's that's a that's a really well run and, and fun show. The content there is really awesome also, especially around the microfilm and space and local deliveries, last mile deliveries, things like that. Shop Talk's another great show. So that that's typically where you see me. My head's down building though. I try not to waste a lot of time at the shows. <laughs> well, it's funny. I love going to those shows, but it's a little daunting when you're like in your hotel room and you're answering emails, you're doing this, doing that. And then you're like, I got to go to the, I paid to be here. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sitting in a very expensive hotel room and I got to get to that conference and justify my existence. Here. No disrespect to Vegas, but I've been to too many trade shows in Vegas. I've kind of done with Vegas. So <laughs> except for manifest, yeah, I'll go next. Exactly. They're all in Vegas. It's not warm in February in the Midwest or the Northeast. So we'll come to Vegas. Anyway, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to uh, your website and any other links you give me. But I really appreciate you coming on the podcast finally. I know, again, we talked, thinking years ago about that little um, vegan ice cream thing. You should. uh, Full circle. Yes, yes, yes. So thank you so much. Yeah, if they're listening, call me again. I'll help you. Yeah, Vita. Yeah, call the guys over at DaVinci. <laughs> she might listen. There's a reason she called. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much, Corey. Thanks, Joe. This was a lot of fun. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on thelogisticsoflogistics.com, our website.